might say, this is kind of a comparison, I guess, but you might say these, these, were, these schools of prophets were sort of like seminaries today. These were prophets, you might say prophets in training, okay? And they would be mentored by prophets like Elijah at that time. So what Elijah is really doing in these verses, we might say, is sort of a goodbye tour uh, <laughs> of these schools of prophets. He goes from one to the other. And put yourself in Elisha's shoes. He's getting a little tired of hearing, you know, uh, the Lord has sent me here. You stay behind. He says, no, you know, I am not going to leave you because he knew that would be the last day he would have with Elijah, this side of heaven. So he does not leave his side, okay? And continues with him. And notice there, uh, he goes to the Jordan finally. Now the Jordan, of course, has a lot of symbolism and a lot of uh, significance in the history of God's people. And notice there in verse seven, how many of the sons of the prophets came along? 50 of them come along. Uh, just there as witnesses, I guess they're, they're thinking something's going to happen here. We want to see it. And notice there what happens in verse 8. Elijah takes his cloak, his, his coat, and he rolls it up kind of tight like a staff and puts it out over the Jordan River. And look at what happens there. It was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Now, gee, that sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Uh, you think of another guy that did something like that with the Red Sea? Moses, right? The guy, the other guy we're going to be talking about at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And, uh, with, you know, reached out over the, the Red Sea and it parted. One other time this happened in the Old Testament, when Joshua and the people of God were coming into the Promised Land, and when the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went down into the water, the water parted again, and it says they went through on dry ground as they were coming into the Promised Land. So this action on the part of Elijah connects him with Moses, connects him with Joshua, and all those important, significant events that happened in their past. And so that happens. And now, notice there in verse 9, uh, Elijah, very nice question to Elisha. You get the sense things are really coming now to the end. And he says there, you know, what should I do for you before I am taken from you? And notice, what does Elisha ask for there? Of all the things he could have asked for, he asked for what? A double portion of his spirit, of Elijah's spirit. Okay, can you think of another time when a guy was in a similar situation, and uh, in fact God asks him, uh, "What is it that you would want? Uh, what if you had anything? What would it be?" Solomon, remember? And what did Solomon ask for? Wisdom to govern God's people or to direct God's people. And in the same way here, Elijah or Elisha rather is asking for something good from Elijah, okay? And also we might think, in the Old Testament, when uh, there was an inheritance, the older son got double portion, a double portion. 
And some are thinking here that, you know, of all these other sons of the prophets that are out there, there's 50 of them here, who knows how many were between those three cities, that Elisha is asking here for the eldest portion or the double portion, okay? Now, in the response, does Elijah guarantee that for him and say, okay, you've got it? He says, no. If you, uh, not necessarily, if you what? If the condition is, if you see me go, you'll get it. If you don't, you won't, okay? So Elijah is kind of leaving. This is going to be left up to God, in other words. Uh, if you see me go, you'll get it. If you don't, uh, you will not get the double portion. And then finally, verse 11. Notice there the chariots of fire and horses separate them. There's a whole lot written about what exactly was this. Uh, there are spots in Scripture where angels are depicted as animals. Heavenly beings are depicted as animals, like these horses. But whatever it was, they are separated by it, and God uses that as the means or the vehicle, we might say, to translate Elijah uh, from this world to the next. Okay? Uh, kind of interesting that um, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am, what's one of the responses that comes back? Some say you are Elijah, come back from the dead, yeah. So this was well known uh, by Jesus' day. And Elijah is going to come back just on the Mount of Transfiguration. There is another spot, we won't bother to look at it here, but there is another spot where Jesus uh, compares John the Baptist with Elijah and says, Elijah has already come and you haven't listened to him. Um, at the end of Malachi, in Malachi 4, verse 5, uh, there is the promise made that Elijah will return before the great day of the Lord. And Jesus says in the Gospels that Elijah has already come and you haven't listened to him. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a very real sense in which Elijah is is standing right there, okay? So, this is the Old Testament lesson appointed for the transfiguration of our Lord, very obviously connected to the uh, transfiguration with Elijah there and the glory that is going to be apparent there, okay? Not something that we see every day, obviously, uh, on this earth, okay? Let me stop there before we move to the gospel lesson then and ask, are there any questions or does anyone have a comment just on the Old Testament lesson before we move to the gospel? Anything? All right, let's move to the gospel lesson then. And that is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. And Mark starts, let's read the whole thing and then we'll go back and kind of take it apart as well. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were, as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. All right, let's go back to the beginning. Mark says here, he places this in time, he says, after six days. Well, what's the first question we might have? Six days what? After what? Right? Six days after, if you look a little bit earlier, in fact, it's in uh, Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Six days after Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem. In fact, I'll just read verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. So that's what happened six days earlier. This is the first time that Jesus with his disciples began to talk about the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Now, put yourself in the place of those disciples. What purpose does the transfiguration serve then for Peter, James, and John knowing what's coming? What would be the purpose, do you think, in terms of, for, at least for Peter, James, and John, of witnessing this transfiguration? Think of what, my, what it might be? Yeah, to know that Jesus eventually would be coming back, the resurrection. And th they are going to see and witness some horrible things coming up, aren't they? They are going to witness the beating and the execution of Jesus. They are going to flee. Peter's going to end up denying Jesus three times, just as Jesus predicted he would, you know, in that courtyard. And they're going to go through all of this. And so before all of that happens, Peter, James, and John receive an incredible revelation. That, and and what's, what, again, what's the bottom line of that, re, of that revelation? That this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the very Son of God. Listen to him. Now, does that serve, uh, remember, transfiguration last Sunday before we launch into Lent? Does it kind of serve that same purpose for us? Yeah. We get that glimpse of the glory, you might say, of Jesus before we launch into Lent and talk about our sins and repentance and eventually face the crucifixion of Christ on the cross. So in terms of our own church year, it kind of serves that same purpose for us, right? And Peter, James, and John are going to have to come down from the mountain of transfiguration and walk with Jesus, you know, to, to, the, to the 
Garden of Gethsemane, where he's arrested and taken away, and in the same way, we through Lent walk with Jesus to the cross. And so this is kind of a, a fortification, I guess, if you, will, uh, if you would, uh, before all of that is going to happen, okay? So six days after Jesus talks about all this, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Peter, James, and John. These guys are always around. Of all the disciples, these guys are always around when something big is going to happen. Uh, who, now, first of all, there are, there are three of the first four who are called, right? Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1. He calls Peter and his brother Andrew. And what was their occupation? Fishermen. Then he goes along a little bit further on the Sea of Galilee, and he calls... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right? And what's their occupation? Fishermen. And we, in fact, we think that uh, Zebedee probably had a pretty good fishing operation because it says that James and John left not only their father, but the workers, the other workers. So we think they might have had a bigger operation. But these guys, in addition to being some of the first called, were also always around when something big was going to happen. They're the ones that Jesus takes, and nobody else, when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's just Peter, James, and John that he allows to go further. Who does he take further with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying that night? Peter, James, and John. So you get the idea. These guys are always around when something big is going to happen. And sure enough, it's Peter, James, and John that he takes up to the Mount of Transfiguration with him. Okay? And so he led them up to a high mountain. So what mountain is this? We don't know. We don't know. We sure wish we did. There are a couple of leading candidates uh, for this. Uh, one is Mount Tabor, which is in the north, uh, northern part, because Jesus was up in the region of Galilee. And it's sort of uh, off to the west from... Uh, Capernaum and from that whole area. Uh, another uh, candidate is Mount Hermon, which is up even further north. And Mount Hermon is a very tall mountain, about 12,000 feet. And in fact, last week still had snow on it up at the top. Okay, So we don't know exactly which mountain it was, but it was a high mountain. That's why we normally think of one of those two. Quite frankly, a lot of the other mountains, so-called mountains in uh, Israel, not very impressive <laughs> by American standards, right? Not, not, very, not very big and very impressive. But uh, those two are the leading candidates. We don't know what, which mountain it was. And notice they go there by themselves. This isn't a group outing. It's just the four of them, okay? So while, and he was, notice it says there, transfigured. So literally his figure his appearance changed. In Greek, if I say what the Greek word is, you'll, you'll catch it. It's, it's metamorpho. Okay? He had a metamorphosis. Okay? His form changed literally up there. He began to glow or to be radiant, as it says there. It's the only place in the New Testament that word radiant is used. Uh, and he was transfigured. And notice there, as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, Mark is the only one that brings in this bleach business. The, other, the others don't have it. And uh, 
this may or may not be interesting, but they used to have this, this uh, it was sort of a soil almost, like a clay. It was called Fuller's Clay. And what they would do is they would take a white garment. This is the way they bleach things in Bible times. They took a white garment and they made sort of a paste out of this Fuller's Clay. They would put it out in the sun, let it dry, and then they would come and scrape that clay off and, and it, apparently the garment would be pristine white, just pure and bright white. And so Mark is making that comparison here, bright, radiant light, okay? And um, notice there, as no one could bleach them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So you get Moses, who is the great leader that God used to bring about salvation literally for his people and their exile from Egypt. You get Elijah, the great prophet from the Old Testament. You've got the law and the prophets sort of represented here by Moses and Elijah. Mark doesn't tell us what they were talking about up there, but Luke does. Luke says they were talking with him about his, literally in Greek, the word is exodus. So what is Jesus' exodus that they were talking about? His coming, crucifixion, resurrection, and eventually ascension, of course. They're talking with him about this up there on that mountain. And we have to remember that while Jesus very clearly here is demonstrating that he is true God, and he, in fact that he is glorified right in front of them, we also have to remember that he is also true man. Not 50-50, but 100% and 100%. And Moses and Elijah are there talking with him about what is going to happen. Now what does this say to us? you got Moses and Elijah up there talking with Jesus about the coming, about what's going to happen with Jesus. So, if nothing else, this tells us what? That this wasn't something that God was making up on the fly. You know, this wasn't something that God was kind of, you know, the old expression, build the boat as you, as you sail down the river. This was always God's plan. And you've got Moses and Elijah here talking with him about it. And that should really give us, uh, again, a lot of comfort and a lot of assurance. Jesus, remember, just verses earlier predicted, this is what's going to happen. Told his disciples right up front, this is what's going to happen. And now you've got Moses and Elijah up there talking with him about it. Jesus wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't a victim of circumstances. He didn't fall into something he shouldn't have been doing. This was God's plan, and it is validated by none other than Moses and Elijah up there on that mountain, okay? Now, Peter, as he so often does, uh, well, let me just, for a second, uh, where else, before we get into that, uh, there, notice that uh, Moses and Elijah appear. Where else in the Old Testament do we see the glory of God in this sort of radiant fashion? I almost alluded, I guess I did allude to it earlier. At where at? Mount Sinai, right? Moses comes down, and what his face is glowing, and he ends up veiling his face. 
right? And so there is something about this being in the presence of the glory of God. That's why, uh, you know, it's, it's in a very real comparison, you might say, or a very uh, accurate way of saying that Jesus is the light of the world, and we reflect that light, right, in a very real sense, uh, to others. This was physically uh, the way it was done. So you've got, you've got that glory already with Moses up on Mount Sinai, and that glory of God shone forth in the same way, showing us once again that Jesus is true God. Um, and so they went on, uh, verse 11, they went on and talked uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, uh, verse 5. Peter said, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, Peter, of course, people always criticize Peter for this statement. I think, frankly, uh, Peter was so taken off guard. I mean, just if you were up there, you, what would, you would be thinking, what in the world is going on here? And, you know, Peter uh, always had this tendency either to say something or to do something before he kind of thought it all through. And same thing here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Who do you forget about? Yeah, Peter, James, John, <laughs> right? I guess they're just going to sleep out on the ground. And there's a whole lot written, you know, gee, was he referring to the tent of meeting in the Old Testament? Was he referring to the booths that they used to be in in the Old Testament? Who knows? He may well have been just so overwhelmed, he didn't know what else to say, you know? But what's Peter saying here by that? Let's stay where? Let's stay up here. This is good. This is nice. Now, we don't want to hear any more about that talk about going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying. Let's stay right up here with Moses and Elijah. Let's just be in all the glory. Uh, you know, the other disciples, you know, it doesn't mention anything about them. Just kind of leave them behind, you know. Let's just stay up here. It'll be great. You know, we'll have, we'll have three, three tents, okay? And notice there, uh, they were, I, I, again, I think he did, see what, see what Mark says there. He did not know what to say for they were terrified. I mean, to be in the presence of the glory of God is terrifying for, for, Sinners like us, right? And then uh, notice there, a cloud overshadowed them. Hmm, where did we see a cloud in the past that would be uh, indicate the presence of God? At okay, Mount Sinai would be one would be one of those places where the cloud, remember, envelops them uh, in the wilderness. How does God demonstrate his presence with his people? Pillar of fire by night and in the day a pillar of cloud. Then remember, in both the tabernacle and when the temple was dedicated, uh, remember what filled, for example, the temple? What came in and filled the temple? It was a great cloud of God's glory. See, So you've got here the indication that the very presence of God is there. Okay? And again, what a sight. Uh, the cloud overshadows them, and notice the voice comes out of the cloud. Just like Mount Sinai here, when, when God is talking to Moses, the voice comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay? And so again, validating exactly who Jesus is. And notice there, Mark makes it very abrupt. Suddenly. Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them 
but Jesus only. And that kind of validates, you know, the fact, listen to him, and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah are gone. they got nobody else to listen to anyway, right? They're going to listen to him and focus on him. And then what seems kind of strange maybe to us at first, they, they come down from the mountain, and you might expect Jesus to say what? Be sure to tell the other disciples, tell everybody you can find about this, but instead just the opposite. He tells them, tell no one about this uh, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, I want to pass over the fact, what's he just predicted there? He's going to rise from the dead, right? We sometimes slide right over that as if it's, you know, un unimportant. But here again, he predicts he's going to rise from the dead. You know, you get, the, you get the impression here that Jesus is in control of the entire timetable. He does not want it known yet. And in Mark's gospel, this is consistent. Whenever Jesus does something amongst the Jews, he says, don't tell anybody about this. Now, granted, there's one case in particular, it's reverse psychology, right? If you tell somebody, don't tell anybody about this, what, what do people do? Tell everybody, you know? Uh, it's like there's a cake on the counter. Don't eat any of that cake, right? <laughs> what are you thinking about? The cake on the counter, right? So uh, I'll grant you that. But all throughout the Gospel of Mark, it's very clear that Jesus is in control of the timetable. It was not yet his time. And so he tells them not to tell anybody about this. It would be interesting if after the resurrection of Christ then, if Peter, James, and John added to the other disciples' knowledge about this. You've got to think they probably did. We don't have it recorded, but they probably did. But until that time, they were not to tell anybody about this. Okay? Now, one other point before we um, uh, leave this, and that's talking about the glory of God and the glory of Christ. I mentioned before that Christ is true God in all of his glory. And there are certain times where that glory was revealed, like the Mount of Transfiguration, like his baptism, like all the healings that he did, like all of the uh, raising of three people that we know of from the dead, like speaking a word and calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. That's the powerful, you know, uh, mighty uh, God and Jesus and glory and power that a lot of people really want. But there's another way that God reveals his glory, and in some cases this is even more so, in that our God is never more glorious than when he would humble himself and voluntarily go to a cross and die for his people. What other God? They're all false gods. But what other God would do that? With all the other gods, it's what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do to impress me and maybe I'll help you? This God comes and to his glory uh, sets aside, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, you know, did not, did not count equality with God something to be latched on to, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And so while, we, while many people like to see the power and the glory and the might, 
The glory of God, I would submit, is most clearly shown in the fact that God would do this, right? That the creator and almighty God of the universe would voluntarily do this, okay? And that's exactly what Jesus has said is going to happen, and that's exactly what uh, uh, Moses and Elijah were up there talking about, okay? All right, let me stop here for a moment. Any, before we got, we got a quick, <laughs> quickly go to the epistle. Yes, Don. Okay, the question was, when Jesus was transfigured, do we think that Peter, James, and John were seeing God? Probably still not in all of his glory. You get, you get in the Old Testament, you get these uh, references that uh, indicate that we could not survive that kind of an experience. And uh, Moses is told, uh, you know, God's backside is going to come past him. And so you, you get these these ways I think God is expressing that you're not going to see 100% yet. You, you wouldn't be able to stand it or withstand it. But he is certainly glorified in a sense of clearly indicating uh, his, his divinity there, but not probably full, full bore. Okay, good question. Any others or comments? Right, yeah, the statement was that uh, even Christians sometimes can fall into this trap of uh, I've got to do something to make God love me and, and bless me and, and so on. And, um, you know, the other thing, we as Americans, um, I'll just say, which, which glory do we like to see more as Americans? Many times. This is, I don't realize this is a general statement. But there are so many people, it seems, they want the power. They want the might, you know, as Americans. You know, they want the shock and awe God, Right? And the, the meek, mild, humble God who goes to a cross, huh? You know, how can that be? And so we got to keep both in mind. You know, uh, there's no denying the, the, the power and, and uh, might of God. But there's also no denying the other. And that's exactly what Christ came to do. Set aside full use of his divine glory for one purpose, and that's to go to the cross. Okay? And it goes, along, uh, goes right along with some Americans who like to preach that God wants you to be the same way, to triumph over everything. To, you, you know, God is, is going to empower you to have more success and triumph over every obstacle in your life. Well, again, that's, that's a wrong vision of, of the way God serves us uh, in this life, right? Same kind of thing. Yes? Uh, will this same glory appear on the last day when he, in the last days? Well, it will, he will come again in glory to judge between the living and the dead. So yes, he will appear back in all of his glory on the last day. I was a little concerned, you said days, plural, but yeah, one day, yeah. On the last day, we confess that in the creed, don't we? He will return in glory to judge between the living and the dead, right. At that point, we won't need any blinders on and anymore, okay? Or any sunglasses. <laughs> All right, we got to quickly go to the epistle lesson. I don't want people thinking we got shortchanged here. Second uh, Corinthians three, uh, uh, twelve and thirteen, and then we jump to four, one through six. Don't get me on why we do this. I don't care for this, but anyway, that's just the way the way that we're assigned. Uh, let's read uh, twelve and thirteen uh, first. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 
not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what has, was being brought to an end. Um, so Paul is saying, what's he saying in verses 12 and 13 of 2 Corinthians 3? He goes back to Moses, and, and remember we talked about that, about Moses coming down from the mountain and his face glowing. If we would have used that Old Testament lesson, we would have seen it right away. We didn't. But he's saying here, you know, we weren't like that. In other words, we didn't put any kind of veil on our face. So what's, he's kind of saying, we are what? We are straightforward here. We haven't veiled anything. We haven't covered anything, right? We've been straightforward and upfront with you in what we have said. Now we jump to 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have, de we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You get the impression here, don't you, that Paul and his colleagues were being accused of, number one, being secretive, being underhanded, being duplicitous in their ministry. And Paul is saying here, no, that's not the way it is at all. We've been right up front with you, okay? And we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, well, that's a strange statement. How is the gospel veiled today, or what veils the gospel? We read just a little bit further. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ah, here we get the, the, here we get the transfiguration connection, right? So, how is the gospel veiled? Who are, who are let's put it this way. Who veils the gospel? In fact, as you even mentioned in this verse, who veils the gospel or puts a screen up, you might say, to the gospel in people's spiritual sight? Satan does, right? Notice it says there that um, uh, this gospel is veiled. The God of this world, in verse 4, who would that be? Satan, right? Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Now, the old, it is unbelief that veils Christ uh, in the minds of unbelievers, right? And Satan brings this about, not to see Christ for who he is. You know, it, it is um, so frustrating when you hear people talk about Jesus as a great moral example or as a great example of loving the unlovable, um, a great teacher, and so on. And he is all those things, no, there's no question. But that's all they see him as, right? As a great example. And we would say, while all of that is true, you're missing the big thing. <laughs> that he is, in fact, as Paul says here, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What does that say? Uh, what does that say to pastors? What we claim is not ourselves. And, you know, uh, I think that's one of the key things that any church you go to, I hope it wouldn't be a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Church, but any church you go to, and it seems to be more centered or focused upon the pastor and his personality and this and that and the other, run out of that church. That is not what it's about. Paul says here, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And what are we? We are servants. We are slaves, it literally translated, for Jesus' sake. There's a lot we could say primarily to pastors here on this. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did God ever say, let light shine out of darkness? At creation, at the very creation, Paul, Paul goes all the way back to creation here, uh, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, And notice there that knowledge comes into our heart, and what does God use to bring that knowledge into our heart? He uses the Word of God, right? The very same word that said, let there be light, is the very same word of God that brings to our knowledge the fact that Jesus Christ is not only God, but is Savior. Okay? So there's a lot here on Transfiguration Sunday, next Sunday. And uh, there's, uh, as we said, that is going to bring epiphany to a screeching halt. And then we will be, on Wednesday, we will begin Lent with Ash Wednesday. And just like those disciples, we're going to be trudging along to the cross, but we will have in the back of our mind that transfiguration that took place on the high mountain. Okay? Any other comments, any other questions before we bring it to a close? Yes, Jan? Okay, the question was that in the epistle lesson, Satan is... Uh, singled out as the one who has blinded the eyes, the minds of the unbelievers. But is it fair to point him out since we are born uh, with original sin? Uh, I would just say the two are not mutually exclusive. They kind of work hand in hand, don't they? And uh, it is the result of the work of Satan that we are born with that sinful condition. So it's not sort of an either or, but a both and. They, they can both get the blame. Yes. Yes, great comment. Jesus' statement, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, right? And it, we again, this is beyond our ability to comprehend. Don't feel bad if you don't understand this. We can't, okay? I always say I'd be, I'd be worried if I could figure God out, right? If I, I, I can't even fill out, I can't even uh, do my own taxes. I have my taxes done. I, I'd be worried if I could figure God out. I'm very happy uh, to say I don't, I don't know. <laughs> All right? All right, good questions, good comments. Let's close then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with us all. Amen.